not only do I have thyroid cancer, but no one believes I do. So no one's hurrying, you know, no one's, no one's as worried as I am. And now I also feel crazy because you almost don't know what, what you think the outcome's going to be or how it's going to make you feel. Cause if you, if you end up having thyroid cancer, when you said you did, you kind of feel justified with how crazy you acted. But if you don't, then everyone's going to say you were a total hypochondriac and you, you were acting crazy. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. You guys, today is the last day to enter the Patreon Supporter Contest, which it is Monday, March 13th, by the way, in case you were listening to this after the day it came out. But if you're listening to this on Monday, March 13th, and you support the show on Patreon today, you will be entered to win either a really cool watch or a really cool pair of sunglasses donated by Truewood to uh, supporters of the show. So there will be two winners of that contest. And if you were a supporter on Patreon by today, then uh, you might have a chance at winning that. So check that out. We also have another contest going on for reviews of the show donated by uh, Charlie, who was the awesome tarot reader that we had on the show recently. So if you leave a review for the show on iTunes by next Monday, March 20th, then you will be entered to win a 30-minute tarot reading over Skype with Charlie, which I did one. So good, you guys. I could not recommend it more. I would highly recommend just taking a, a minute to write an interview. It would be well worth possibly winning a, uh, a tarot reading with Charlie. So on to today's episode. I hope you all uh, listen to part one of our interview with Dr. Sarah Boston. If you did not listen to that yet, I highly, highly recommend it as the episode right before this. She is one of 50 fellowship trained veterinary surgical oncologists in the entire world. She is just a freaking boss. She's so awesome and she's funny and nice and cool. And in part one, we talked all about vet oncology and about treating cancer in animals. In this one, part two, um, as fate and cruel irony in the world would have it, Sarah, at a very young age in her 30s, was diagnosed with cancer herself. So um, in this episode, we talk about her finding a lump in her neck, her thinking that she has cancer, uh, other physicians that she was seeing kind of not thinking that she had cancer and her really having to be her own advocate throughout the process and uh, then finally getting diagnosed what that was like and uh, ultimately she ended up writing a book about the entire process and I've read it. It is absolutely awesome. I could not possibly recommend it more. It is called Lucky Dog, How Being a Veterinarian Saved My Life. There'll be a link to it on the post for both of these episodes, um, or you can just go to Amazon and search for it, but I really highly recommend it. It is funny and beautiful and great, and um, yeah, a lot of good vibes and awesome stuff in this episode. Without further ado, here is Cancer Survivor. All right, so let's talk a little bit about you and your story and uh, and the amazing book that you wrote. So you discovered a growth in your own neck a while back. Um, tell us about that and about finding growth in your neck, especially being a surgical oncologist and having your entire background and I guess kind of what was going through your head. I was at my friend's house. I was uh, doing a locum in Calgary, which is in Western Canada. And... I talk about this in the book too, but I, I put cream on my face and my neck because I'm very worried about wrinkles. I'm in my forties now, but anyway, always very concerned about that. 
And so I always put cream on my neck because if you look at movie stars, you'll notice that some of them didn't. And there's nothing you can do about a wrinkly neck. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. You got to be proactive. A, yes. There's any 20 year old women listening. Don't forget the neck. It's important. So I know what my neck feels like. You know, I know I touch it twice a day and I, I'm a surgeon. So I, I touch things for a living. So, um, yeah, I was getting ready for bed and I just felt this mass in my neck and I, I honestly instantly knew what it was. It was just the weirdest thing because it felt just like a dog with a thyroid carcinoma. And I was like, yep, that wasn't there before. And it's new. Um, and it was a little bit hard because I wasn't at home and I wasn't really sure what to do because I was supposed to be doing this locum, but I was pretty sure I had thyroid cancer, which actually makes you feel crazy because you feel like a hypochondriac. But I ended up leaving my locum a little bit early and I went back and I really felt like it was going to be just like a dog. Like I would just go to my doctor and be like, I have a thyroid mass and they would just whisk me off to surgery within a couple of days. But, um, things literally ground to a halt. And I think, I think the physicians thought I was a little bit crazy, like a hypochondriac. So yeah, like you see cancer all day, you have a bump on your neck and you immediately assume it's cancer. Yeah, it was very much like that. And then, um, through some of my frustrations of having to wait, um, I couldn't get even an ultrasound done for a week and a half. And I was, I was very frustrated by that because I thought, well, you know, what would come up quickly in your thyroid area, it would be either a cyst, which would just be a benign fluid filled mass, which is not pleasant probably, but not, not a big deal. Um, or a thyroid carcinoma. So I was like, well, it's one of those two things. And I just wanted someone to ultrasound it so I could see it. So my husband's a large animal vet. So I, I made him bring home his ultrasound machine and I just ultrasounded my neck myself. Um, that's, I, I, I love this part of the book, by the way, like I, how you were like in the book, you kind of say like that it's, you know, that's obviously not really something you're supposed to do, but like, of course you're going to do that. And like, that's, yeah. uh, that's so awesome <laughs> that you did that. Like you, you had to do that, you know, like, how would you not do that? Yeah, I couldn't wait. I'm not very patient. I'm a surgeon, right? So I was like, no, I, I don't want to wait a week and a half. I just want to know what's going on in there now. So um, I ultrasounded it and it just, it just looked like a thyroid carcinoma in a dog. I mean, I, I've given talks about this and I show a picture of my thyroid mass and a dog's thyroid mass. And they look exactly the same. And I was like, okay, I have a thyroid carcinoma. Now we just need to like get this treated. And um, it was a pretty frustrating process. And I should mention I'm Canadian and I was in Canada at the time. And so Things move slower in Canada. It's socialized medicine, and um, I believe very strongly in socialized medicine. And and there's, you know, my, some people read my book and thought that I'm against it, and I'm, I'm not. Um, but there's there's problems in all the different systems that deliver medicine, whether Absolutely. it's veterinary medicine, the Canadian system, um, the American system. I think is, in my opinion, more deeply flawed. But there's flaws in all the systems, and you know, one of the themes of the book is trying to say hey, we need to look at all these systems, including veterinary medicine, and see what's working and what's not. Right. Um, so I, it took me a month and a half to get to surgery, and then it took another month for me to get the mass um, diagnosed. And so through that whole time, I was being told by multiple doctors that I didn't have cancer, and I was pretty sure I did, which is which is a crazy-making state, um, but it does lead to writing. So that's <laughs> that's kind of how the book came about. I, I like... God, I just felt for you so much when I was reading this. It, it's it's like incredible to even think about. Like, first of all, the like every basically every doctor that you went to along the way, and like the amount of time that you had to wait between each thing, because part of like a um like a socialized healthcare system like Canada has is you need a referral 
you know, from you need a referral from the first guy to get to the second guy. You need a referral from the second guy to get to the third guy. Like each person has to make the referral and then they can like expedite the referral depending on the situation. But it's like each person along the way for you was like, oh, no, don't worry. You don't have cancer. And I just can't imagine the extent to which I would flip out if I had this growth on my neck that I thought might be cancer and the doctors keep telling me like, oh, no, don't worry. It's, it's probably not cancer. It's like, I'm sorry. Who the hell are you? Like, what do you mean? It's pro- like, I, like, can we do a test then? Can we do it like now? Can we do it yesterday? It's, it's like I in, in the book, you mentioned asking, I think it was like the second physician that you saw, the endocrinologist or something, um, just kind of matter of factly because of how crazy everything was making you uh, to write you up a script for some anti-anxiety medication and I like could just like relate to that so much. I could only imagine like trying not to strangle someone or or like just completely freak out when everyone is. It seems like not taking your health seriously. It's like you might actually have cancer, and everyone's like, "Oh no, don't worry about it. It's no big deal." Yeah, one of one of the doctors. He he was the endocrinologist. He literally patted me on the knee. Like it was very patriarchal, but he literally patted me on the knee and said, "You don't have cancer, dear." And then. I left with my husband. My husband was there with me and he said, do you feel better now? And I said, no, I feel worse because <laughs> not only do I have thyroid cancer, but no one believes I do. So no one's hurrying, you know, no one's, no one's as worried as I am. And now I also feel crazy because you almost don't know what, what you think the outcome's going to be or how it's going to make you feel. Cause if you, if you end up having thyroid cancer, when you said you did, you kind of feel justified with how crazy you acted but if you don't, then everyone's going to say you were a total hypochondriac and you you were acting crazy. But I don't it's think it's like better. the ultimate catch twenty two. Like if you <laughs> if you prove yourself right, it means you have freaking cancer for God's sake. And if you <laughs> prove yourself wrong, then like you know, it just yeah, there's like no real winner in that situation. Yeah, and I you know there are I know people who have gone through thinking they have cancer, and then in the end they didn't have cancer, and people really just blow those people off. Oh, but you were, you know, everything was fine. Even when you have thyroid cancer, because it's known to be the good cancer, which I don't, I don't really like that term, but people just say, oh, well, you're fine. But I think what they're missing is the fact that, you know, for whatever that time period was, that person thought that breast lump was cancer. And that's really stressful. You know, that's a very stressful thing to go through. So I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad those people don't have cancer in the end, but I, I feel bad for them away because people just dismiss them. Like you're supposed to be fine now. You know, everything's good. Yeah. So. That's it's still a, a hard thing point. to go through. Yeah. Do you feel like... Okay, so you obviously have a major background in oncology. It's all you do all day long. Do you feel like that background made the whole situation better or worse? Obviously, there's the part of it that it almost made worse because of the fact that people were not... Uh, it sounds like that your physician team was not necessarily trusting your judgment. Um but I guess throughout the whole rest of the process, like did having this extra breadth of knowledge on the subject, uh, was it almost like you knew too much about it and it made it more scary? Or is it like, I know a lot about this, it's going to be all right? I actually felt really lucky because I could read the literature and understand it. And, you know, I talked about that with some of my clients that try so hard to do research and they don't, they don't know what source to go to. And, and I felt very privileged, very lucky that I could, I could read the the thyroid carcinoma journal articles, you know, for people and understand exactly what was going on. Um, so I think for the most part, it made it better. Another really strong theme in, in my book is that you have to either be an advocate for yourself or you have to have an advocate. And it, again, it doesn't matter if it's veterinary medicine because in veterinary medicine, the client is the advocate for their pet. 
Um, if it's you going through a health problem, you either need to be an advocate or bring someone with you and they need to be an advocate. Someone there needs to be asking questions and needs to be, even if it seems crazy saying, well, what about this? And, and I need this appointment. And because no one else is going to do that for you. Um, so you, you can't just be complacent. I was told that we could just watch it. You know, we, we could just watch this mass in my neck. Um, I wonder if I was a history professor or something like that, if I would have thought, well, that's fine. We'll just watch it, you know? And, and, um, so I, I'm very, I'm very glad that I had that background, but I think anyone who is going through health issues, I think it's really important to listen to yourself. You know, if you've got something and you telling you this isn't quite right, or you know, I think something's really wrong with me, you've, you've got to follow up on that. Yeah, absolutely. It just makes you think about and feel so sad for, like you mentioned, if you're just like a history professor or something, but particularly people that are um, either A, uneducated um, or B, uh, like incredibly introverted, like non-confrontational or, you know, not, uh, you know, whatever it is. And as they're being told like, oh no, don't, don't worry about it. Just take, take your time. And they're just really, really taking. So, all right. You, you basically knew you had cancer during this whole process. How long was your process from start to finish? It was months. So I went, let's see, it was like, I think I told you wrong before. I think it was two and a half months till I had surgery. So I found the mass. It was two and a half months to have surgery and then another month till I had the results. And then I had to wait. I had to have another surgery because I only had half of my thyroid removed. They will only take one half at a time, which, which actually does make sense because, you know, if you don't have thyroid cancer, they'd rather leave you with some normal thyroid tissue. Um, So then I went back a few months later, had the other side removed and that was done in, I think I had my first surgery in May and my next surgery in late August. And then I had to have radioactive iodine after that. And that was in November. So it kind of took, you know, it was like seven or eight months of kind of back and forth, uh, going back and forth with treatment and diagnostics. Just crazy. And that's while you're completely being your own advocate, you know? So like you said, it's like, God, it just makes you think about other people. Like if that's how long it can take for you, then how long is it taking for other people? Um, and what, like, I guess what could have happened and would be different if the process had been faster? So had it been like the way that you treat your animals and it was just uh, within a matter of a few days from, you know, you immediately look at it. Yep, that's cancer. We take it out. That's that. Um, would would things have been different for you? Could things have gone worse if it had continued to drag on more and more? I think if it had gone faster from a prognosis perspective, I don't think it would have been that different. I think from a perspective of just going through that process and being so frustrated and waiting, um, that would have been eliminated. I always like to joke that then I w- there would have been no book. You know, I might have would have written an essay, but that would have been <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> I have to be like strangely thankful, I guess, that, that I went through that. Um, so I was able to communicate that in a book. Uh, I think if it had gone on longer, you know, thyroid cancer is a slow moving cancer. And I think that's the other reason people don't get too excited about it because they know, you know, as far as the physicians, they know it's slow moving. Um, so they don't really get that excited about thyroid cancer. They just think, well, it's, you know, it's probably fine and it might come back and won't come back for years and it probably won't come back at all. Um, so that's kind of how they act. I think the, the thing for me was that it, it was growing. Like I, I only got the ultrasound twice um the home ultrasound because my husband said he wasn't going to bring it home for me anymore but i was measuring it, 
And it was growing. Like I measured it and then a week later it was six millimeters bigger and it was a four centimeter mass in my neck. I mean, it was visible. You could see it, you know, as it was growing, you could see it in my neck. Um, and in general, you know, as a rule of thumb for cancer, it doesn't really matter what kind, the longer it's there, the, the bigger it can get and the more chance of it spreading. So, you know, I think that there's at least a chance it could have spread. I mean, would I have died? Probably not with this type of cancer, to be honest, but I think just going through that would have been very frustrating. Um, Sarah, I just don't understand how, how you didn't lose it. Like, I really, really, really don't. It, if I had seen something growing on me, I, I don't know how you don't like just march into the office and be like, look, you are going to operate on me right now. Like, that's how this is going to happen. I'm chaining myself to your desk. I'm not leaving <laughs> until you operate on me. Like, how do you prevent yourself from acting like that? Well, I think the writing was cathartic, um, honestly. And I, I mean, it's kind of sick humor sometimes. You, you probably have seen that in the book. And there's parts of the book that, I mean, I didn't change. I just wrote them when I was feeling that crazy. And I have friends who read it and they're like, you were crazy. I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna take it. that's exactly how I felt in that moment. And I might not feel like that now if I wrote about it now looking back because everything's worked out. But that's what it feels like when you're in that moment and you want someone to take care of you and no one's listening to you. So, um, you know, some of those passages, I just left them. I left them like that. I wanted them to be like that because it was really authentic. And that was what I was experiencing. So, I mean, I feel lucky that I had the writing as an outlet. Yeah. Um, but it was challenging. I'm, I've got great friends and I have a wonderful husband and a very supportive family. So I think that also helped me get through it. Um, but it was, it was very frustrating. I'm not going to downplay it. I was very frustrated. You'll see that. I mean, you see that in the book. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, try to zero in on for us the, the appointment where you got confirmation that you did have cancer and what that was like we talked a little bit about that about how it's like this bittersweet thing of like haha i told you i'm right but uh what is it like to actually be told that you have cancer what is that moment like i was told over the phone so it wasn't actually a an appointment where i went in and it was a little frustrating because i i knew the phone call was coming soon because i think i had been in touch and it took a long time to get my results back so i'd been in touch saying you know when are these coming so i knew the phone call was coming and I remember I was in this seminar all day and I had my phone like literally in my pocket and my hand on my phone. It was on vibrate because I didn't want it to be ringing, but I was waiting for this phone call and I was sitting at the back of the room and I had told people in the seminar that I might have to leave because I was waiting for this phone call. And I don't know what happened because I kept checking my phone the whole time. And like the second I got the phone call, I missed it. I think I just, something must have happened that I was paying attention to in the seminar I was oh, in. Man, that's so funny. And I missed the call and it was the end of the day. So uh, the surgeon didn't leave me a number to call back. Oh, God, I'm calling about your results. And then that was it. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like the whole day I was holding my phone <laughs> waiting for this call. So then the next day, I think, I think I missed this call again, but he actually did leave a number and then I called him back. So it took like a couple of days to get a hold of him, which was, which was really frustrating. Um, and then he told me that I had a thyroid carcinoma, which I mean, honestly, I wasn't like, haha, I knew it, but I felt like, okay, it was just kind of, for me, it felt like the other shoe dropped and that it was kind of confirmation. So I was not glad, but I knew this for months and I just needed to move forward. I just was like, okay, now what do we do? And actually, I mean, that's a real lesson for me going through this process and working with my clients. A lot of times you just want the information and you just kind of want to know how bad is this? Like what's going to happen? And that calms you down. It's, it's a really weird thing to say, but 
people with their pets and people who have a mask themselves that are getting worked up, they always think it's the worst thing. So being told that isn't as terrible as you would think. It's just like, I want information. I want to know what what's happening with my lymph nodes. I want to know what type of carcinoma this is, and I want to know how we're going to treat it. And that's yeah. a real hurdle is to kind of get through that information stage and then just get on with it. So that that's kind of, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of the prevailing feeling I had. God, it makes so much sense. It's interesting that that would even occur with something that unbelievably serious. Uh, I've had much lesser things in my life, but and I think most people can probably kind of relate to that where um, there's some like kind of unknown decision coming up or whatever it is. And you, uh, you kind of obsess over it and think about it so much. And you, you're like, let's say it's a decision you're like afraid of or this or that. And it's, you have so much fear leading up to it. And then it's like the moment the decision is made all of a sudden, like so much of the fear just melts away. And it's like, oh yeah, cool. Now I can actually plan on this thing going forward, which is exactly what you just said about finding out that there was indeed a carcinoma. Um, amazing that like that that same sort of feeling would happen with something so serious and it was weird the way that people interact with me too i don't you just made me think of this but i'd be at work you know i'd be scrubbing into surgery or running around with a dog or whatever i was doing and and someone would walk past me in the hall and be like hey sarah did you get your diagnosis back i was like that's just so bizarre like what am i supposed to am i supposed to just like run by you and go yeah i have cancer and then (laughs) Like, it just made me think a lot about the time and place for asking people for how they are. Sure. Man, <laughs> wait, so what happened in these situations? Well, I didn't have a back for so long, so I didn't have to I didn't have to do that. But it always made me laugh. Like as I just thought, well, what am I supposed to say? Like I'm I'm heading into a surgery or I'm like running past you, like, yeah, cancer. Okay, I'll I'll talk, <laughs> I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I just think people are very funny with how to deliver news or ask questions or, you know, I mean at any given time in a workplace, there's going to be someone who's going through something challenging, you know, whether that's a divorce or a death in the family or illness, you know, and, and I don't know, people are just always very funny with how they ask them, like, how are you doing? Or like, <laughs> a lot of times people aren't doing that well. So, yeah, but absolutely. We, we don't know how to, we don't always know what to say, but I, I have learned also that sometimes just telling someone I'm thinking of you, you know, is there anything I can do? That's that's probably enough, and it's better than saying nothing, which is the other thing we do. We don't we kind of clam up because we don't know what to say. Yeah, that definitely happens so much. Did uh did you then try like once you did get the confirmation that you had cancer? Did you try to do anything pro? Like were you like all right, I should just go in and say something so that way these weird situations don't come up, or, or what happened afterwards? Well, bad news travels fast. I think I told like five people, and then everyone at work knew. So. Yeah, so no one needed to ask anymore. Did people kind of treat you differently? Like, were they more, I guess, delicate around you? Or like, oh, do you need me to cover a shift or, you know, anything like that? I think, you know, I I had my colleagues did have to step in a bit just because I was going out for surgeries. And then there's a period where I was getting ready for radioactive iodine where I went off of my, you have to go off all of your thyroid medication and they call it going hypo, but you, you don't make any thyroid hormone and you don't take anything. So, wow. um, and it's about a month that you feel like that. So it wasn't really an option to work during that time because I, I probably would have killed someone's dog. I'm not even kidding. Like you just, your brain is shut off. You can't do anything. So, um, yeah. But Again, my colleague, what do you do? Just like sleep all day? Yeah. Or you write your book. i'm in this weird like hypo brain fog thing and that's so crazy i your book is like so so good by the way i i was telling you this in email like i it's so well written it's so good 
it's funny to hear you mention these different things about like, oh, that's why that part's so crazy and like why I sound crazy. Or now you saying like, oh, I was in this like uh, this hypo fog because my brain was barely working because I I had like no thyroid hormones. Like I, that's incredible for me to hear because it's unbelievably good and it's unbelievably, um, I guess like uh emotional and like packed with personality like so much of your emotion and and your personality and who you are come through to think that any of that was written (laughs) when you were in that state is crazy well it's all part of me right so you know it's there but i definitely a lot of people a lot of my friends who have read the book you know especially my friends that are far away they said they felt like they were going for coffee with me like they just felt like they were just talking to me because it's quite conversational so um, you know, I took that as a compliment. And then I had a lot of people say, like, it's so honest. And I'm like, well, it's memoir. Like, you kind of <laughs> kind of have to be honest to be writing memoir. Otherwise, it's not it's fiction, right? So yeah, it's it's legit what happened. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So at what point did you decide to write a book exactly? I know you said that kind of during this process, you would sit down and write your thoughts out. What like what were you doing when you were writing your thoughts out were you just journaling as like a sort of catharsis uh to just kind of think through everything did you actually have a plan of a book how how this all happen i had no plan um i do enjoy writing you know to amuse myself i always say like you know alf and that crazy old sitcom i'm always like i kill me like i can make myself laugh and no one else is laughing but i i find myself hilarious so i think a lot of the time i was just trying to make you know make myself laugh because the situation was so frustrating and i was like okay i just have to make fun of this because you know there's actually good comedy when when things are tense and frustrating so i was literally writing it kind of to entertain myself while i was waiting for things to happen and then i started sending it out to my friends because i have a lot of friends in a whole bunch of different cities and even countries because I've, i've moved around a bit and a lot of people in the veterinary profession will move around a lot so it was just my way of saying like Hey, how's it going? I might have cancer. Like, this is what's happening with me. And um, every time, like every week, something was happening or not happening, and I was I was writing about it. And I got to a point where I had thirty to thirty five thousand words, and I was like, "Why? Well, I should do something with this." And I wasn't sure if it was going to be a blog or what I was going to do with it. But um, I had this completely chance encounter with a, a famous author in Canada when we were raising money for the cancer center at the University of Guelph, where I was working. And he was at a fundraiser. He was sitting beside me and I ended up reading some of my work at this fundraiser. And he connected me to uh, the president of the publishing house at the house of Anansi. And so that's kind of how that happened, which is actually really unbelievable. It's so unbelievable. Yeah. The more I know about the writing industry that I had no agent and this just kind of happened, like real authors probably really hate me because it's so lucky. Like it really, the title of the book is lucky dog and, I mean, part of that is just how lucky I was to get published. I mean, honestly, it was just this completely random chance thing. But um, the House of Anansi is a pretty amazing group, and they gave me a lot of support and helped me as a first author. And I really couldn't have asked for a better experience in trying to trying to write a book. But I didn't know I was writing a book until I was kind of halfway through it. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that the book's called Lucky Dog. I assume the other part of that title is like the double entendre of how much better off dogs are in your situation than you were? Yeah, absolutely. So the second part is how being a veterinarian saved my life, which, you know, is also just about, you know, having that knowledge of medicine and the fact that I knew what was going on with me and it helped me to advocate for myself. 
Um, so sometimes people get it mixed up. I've been on some interviews where they're like, how did your dog save your life? And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) so I stopped breathing and my dog jumped on top of me and gave me CPR. (laughs) I'm like, that'd be a great story. Yeah. I mean, it's been a good learning process for me to try to recover from that on live television when they're like, (laughs) how did rumble save your life? And I'm like, well, he didn't, but he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. That's so funny. Maybe he does save my life. He's he's a pretty special dog to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the very first sentence of the book, and then the 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 like last words, basically in the in the last sentence, it, the book starts out with you saying, "I wish I were a dog," and then you talk about all these ways that you wish that you were a dog instead of a person. And it's so funny and cute and great, like the, these these things that you list out that why being a dog would be great, and like these things that you would miss being a person for, but like these reasons why being a dog would be great, and they're all so true and so awesome, and I love it. And uh, but you kind of end the chapter with thinking that with finding this lump, and then realizing that people are not really trusting you. Like, you know, the physicians are kind of saying, oh, no, you know, you don't really have cancer and don't worry about it and whatever else. And you kind of contrast that with uh, how quickly you are able to turn around your dog or your cat patients that come in where they might have cancer and how quickly it goes from they might have cancer, they've been tested, the cancer's been removed, it's done. Um, to the whole entire process that you went through, which took months and months of people telling you that you probably didn't have cancer. Um, and then, you know, you end that chapter with, so yeah, I wish I were a dog because I would be getting better treatment right now, you know, if I were a dog, um, which is just so poignant. And it, it, it's it's honestly amazing to me that you're not a writer. Like, it's God, it's just so good. That, I mean, well, now you are a writer, so I guess I, I can't say that. that but it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing how good the writing is in the book. But Anyways, I guess talk a little bit more about the the treatment that you received versus the treatment that you actually give your patients and what it what the difference is like for a dog as opposed to a human um, in the dog healthcare system versus the human healthcare system. Yeah, so dogs will come in to the hospital and have either an ultrasound or a CT done either the same day or the next day, and then usually within a day from that they would have surgery, and then they would go home the next day. And our pathology results will be back. If it's taking five days, I mean, that's long for for us. So, you know, within 10 days, that patient could come in, have all their imaging done, have their surgery, and um, have the results back, and then maybe be talking to a medical oncologist if need be, you know, and getting their sutures out. So um, definitely a much faster experience than what I went through. And um, people don't even realize that. I think that that's the other thing that's amazing to me, kind of having been on both sides of it is, a lot of the clients come in and they're disappointed the dog can't have surgery today. Wow, really? And and sometimes mad, like sometimes slash a bit mad <laughs> that they can't have surgery the same day. And I just think, have you ever been to a physician? Like, have you ever had surgery? Like that that doesn't that doesn't happen in any system that you would go in and have your thyroid removed. I mean, just it doesn't. But um, you know, I feel like we're doing a pretty good job in veterinary specialty medicine trying to move things through. And something I really try to do for my practice because I think it's important is try to get the diagnostics done quickly and then let people have a bit of breathing room to think about what they want to do. Cause it's usually mm, a pretty right. decision. And I don't think it's the worst thing. Once people know what's going on and they know the options, then they can maybe just regroup and huddle with their family and figure out what they want to do. So never want someone to feel rushed into a procedure because they're big procedures that I do. So I, you know, I want to make sure that 
the whole family's on board and they're they're very comfortable uh kind of whatever happens i mean most of the time our outcomes are good but not always like you said and i want to make sure that everyone feels that that was that was the family's decision that that's what they wanted to do for their dog it's so incredibly bizarre to think that we are basically treating animals better than people like to not i mean I love animals and I love dogs. So like, I, I mean, I, I probably treat most dogs better than I treat people if I'm being <laughs> honest, but it's, uh, it just is a medical system that, that within days, the dog would be having their cancer removed. And for a person, uh, like in the Canadian healthcare system, it would take months or like any sort of socialized healthcare system like that in the U S or like a privatized system. I would imagine it still takes longer than it would for a dog it's just that's so bizarre and so backwards it is i mean i think it's good that we treat our dogs so well and you know the one difference that um people always point out is that well you just pay for everything you know if it's a there's no there's no state or government involvement um there's no insurance companies unless you have purchased insurance for your pet so you just pay you know and i guess we do have that ability to do that in the united states you know canadians can come down here and do that it's just really cost prohibitive um to do that so i mean that's that's the that is one big difference but i think there's also other other things that aren't just financially related i think um i do believe that veterinarians spend more time with the clients explaining everything and so i was very surprised how little time they spent with me and you know we we spend hours writing these big long discharge statements they're all typed out all the information is there um to make sure people have enough information to care for their pets when they go home and when I left the hospital, I literally was given a strip of paper that had one sentence on it, and it said, contact your physician's office on Monday for a recheck. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was my whole home instructions. And I actually had low blood calcium um, after I had my second uh, part of my thyroidectomy done. And so, you know, I kind of knew what was going on, but I was like, surely there's more instructions that you would want to give someone who doesn't know what to do if they're God, calcium. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was really a stark difference for me. And then the other difference is just access, you know, trying to get appointments, trying to talk to someone um, in the human system. It's very difficult and very frustrating. Whereas, you know, if I have a client that's calling me, even if I'm in surgery all day, if I don't get back to them the same day, they're actually very upset about that, which, which is also interesting to think about. You know, if you think about what access you have to your physicians or specialists, you know, no one would ever consider that to be something to be upset about if you were calling a human surgical oncologist that if they didn't call you back for a day or two. But in our system, people just really expect that. And I, I think there's a balance there. I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I think there's a balance there. I think physicians could be a little more accessible and maybe veterinarians a, a little more protected. Yeah, for sure. I wonder, like you said, how much cash has to do with all of that and how pervasive it is in all of that. Because obviously, if um, like in the US, it's insurance that's paying for it or in Canada, it's the government that's paying for it or you know, taxpayer dollars, whatever. Uh, there's uh, uh, almost a piece of like, well, you're not, you're not really my, uh, my employer, is it? We're like, you're not the one paying me. I don't have to call you back right away type thing, you know, versus like, if you, if that person is actually paying you cash, that person is going to expect a, like a certain level of service from you. Like, Hey, I'm paying you a thousand dollars. You better freaking call me back, you know? Um, versus I guess as people, we can't really do that because we're not the one forking out money for this surgery or whatever it is. It is this very bizarre thing in veterinary medicine. It's this combo of a service industry 
and a profession because we're professionals, you know, we're doctors, but it's a service industry. And, uh, yeah, I think that's where that tension is. Whereas in the human medical system, I mean, you could argue they're a service industry, but they definitely are more veering into the professionalism and that they're professionals and people recognize that. So I think that's where, where the difference is. And, and as veterinarians, we want to give great service. You know, we absolutely do, but, um, you know, sometimes people have to wait a little bit or they don't get called back right away because we're busy and we're, we're managing a lot of things. And, and, uh, but I think when you are thinking in context of this is a service industry, that is not acceptable. Yeah. Uh, you're thinking in terms of this is a professional, this is a doctor, it is more acceptable. You know, I just had a client, I really like her, but she was calling and she had talked to my um, fellow. So he's someone training to do uh, surgical oncology. He's already a surgeon. And she had already talked to him, but she really wanted to talk to me. And I, I didn't get back to her exactly right away, but you know, people on our service did. And then I called her and she was exasperated. She said, you're so hard to get a hold of. And it really had only been two days and it wasn't an emergency. And I just thought, well, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, if it had been a human surgical oncologist, I don't think that even that thought would have crossed, would have crossed her mind. So yeah, for sure. So now that you, so you live in the U.S. right now, you lived in Canada before, and um, I heard you mention a experience, I guess, that you had when you first got to the University of Florida, and you were talking about this whole experience that you had uh, getting diagnosed with cancer and how long everything was taking um, with one of the other surgeons there at the University of Florida. And her response to you was that, what, it would have taken about one week or something in the U.S.? Yeah, that was my endocrinologist here. Um, you know, I just asked her, you know, how long would it have taken? And she's like, a week, maybe two. You know, that's how long this whole thing would have taken, which is probably because I'm a professor at the university and I have very good health insurance because I work there. Right. And, right. Then, you know, I, I have access because, you know, there's a there's a hospital at, at the University of Florida, too. Um, I think that's really good for me. But I still, you know, I'm, I'm still very Canadian. And so I don't feel like it's right that I have that access, but not everyone does. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not. Always good yeah, it's all yeah. just so hard. That's what I wanted to talk about with you next is so like, I spend uh, a bizarre amount of time thinking about how I would fix the <laughs> American healthcare system if I could. Oh, I would good. love to know what your ideal healthcare system would be because, like, to what you just said, like, oh, you know, but I, I had the Canadian in me, so I feel like everyone should have access to that. But uh, as it plays out in Canada, giving everyone access to that, it looks like perhaps means that it takes months. It means that it doesn't just take a week or something. Like, what I guess in your eyes would be the best sort of meeting in the middle or, or just the best solution in general if you were to take a stab at the absolute insane uh, thing <laughs> that is healthcare. Okay, well, I'm not an expert in that. I should just sort of start out by saying that. But I, I think about it a lot, just like you do. And I do believe in uni universal healthcare. I believe strongly in that. You know, I think it should be a right in, in a developed country. I think it should be a right that people have access to good healthcare. And what little I know is that I don't think that we're, you know, in America, they're not paying less per capita for healthcare. It's just how it's distributed. And so I don't know how you fix that because I, it's so complicated. I don't even understand my own health insurance, to be honest. So I don't, I'm not going to wade into that, but I, I do think moving towards universal healthcare is important. Um, I also actually believe in people taking personal responsibility. So this Hell yeah, man, this is my solution. This is like okay. the only solution. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are some insurance companies now that if you're a smoker, you have to pay more. 
I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I also think that that healthcare system should help you to stop smoking and help you to eat better and educate you and help you to lose weight if that's what you want to do and um, support you to be healthy. So, and you know, the one negative in Canada that I see is that people do feel like whatever happens, they're going to be taken care of, um, which is great. But I think you also have to take some responsibility for yourself. You can't just think, well, I'm just going to not take care of myself and it doesn't matter because my healthcare system's going to pay for everything and fix me. So I do have a bit of that feeling of, of people being responsible for their own health, but goodness, sometimes things happen when you get a thyroid mass in your neck, you get hit by a car, you know, things that are completely beyond your control. And I think everyone deserves to be taken care of. Yeah. A hundred percent. And this is what our resources need to be made available for. It's, um, to your point about people in Canada and certainly people in the United States and people all over the entire world. I mean, we have a, a real like obesity epidemic going on, you know, and, and, and like if if people in it, 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 like, you know, you mentioned smoking and there's just so many other things. And if people are are if everyone's just going to get free health care in Canada, um, there should there. Yeah, there needs to be some sort of incentive for doing things that are going to prevent uh, your health from slipping, you know, like, well, I don't understand how we don't. We don't have it that everyone is covered, but if everyone is covered, then maybe you have to go see a physician every six months, like every six months you get a physical or something. And then that physician does some sort of like recommendations for you, you know, like, oh, I, I noticed that this has been happening. If you could maybe uh, like start going, like going for a walk every day, going for a run every day, like doing this, doing that. And uh, I mean, that, that obviously gets into... A complicated issue of the government kind of like quote unquote tracking you and like following like you know what your exercise regimen is or this or that but um i mean healthcare is too expensive i feel like and is going to become such a big problem if we don't start implementing things like that and we should want people to take care of themselves and we should want to take care of ourselves um and yeah those funds should be around to be able to take care of like you said for for if someone gets hit by a freaking bus or like god forbid you have a heart attack or whatever it is like we need to have enough money to take care of these people in in a in a quick and professional fashion and you know and i also think that um people who can pay should pay some you know i don't think i i don't think it's that big a deal if you have a good income if you're over a certain income level that you pay a little bit for your health insurance you know i don't think it has to be as crazy it is as it is down here uh in the states but i think Paying a little bit every time you go to the doctor is probably okay. Um, you know, there's some there's some concerns in Canada that people just go to the emergency whenever they have a cold, or you know, they don't they maybe don't need to go to the doctor, and it's putting a burden on the healthcare system. So maybe if you have to pay twenty dollars or forty dollars, you would really think about do I really need to go to the doctor? So you know, I, I think I think there's definitely totally. and or like me. do I really need to smoke this cigarette right now? You know, <laughs> like. Yeah. If if you got to pay uh, $20 a month if you're a smoker, but you don't pay $20 a month if you're not a smoker, well, like, you're going to think twice maybe about smoking that cigarette, you know, who knows? Yeah, and I also, I mean, I don't understand why cigarettes are legal. It, I know that's not a very also American thing to say, because people believe in freedom here a lot more than in Canada, I think, but um, I don't understand it. It kills people. You know, we know that. We've known that since the 60s. Like, why why are we letting people hurt themselves? I, I don't. I don't really understand that, but yeah, agreed. Yeah, so many, so many. Uh, I don't know who makes laws. It's really bizarre. Um, 
I'm really confused right now. So <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad that we just solved nothing. Um, yeah, me too. But, <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and wind this thing down, Sarah, with uh, some advice for some people. And also, I would love to know in case uh, any of us hopefully don't have problems with our animals in the future. But if we do, um, what is the cost that we could be looking at since it is usually probably going to be cash of uh, of treating cancer in animals? So it is actually very expensive to get specialty care for your pet and even just just even basic, you're probably experiencing that with your puppy, basic care is pretty expensive. Uh, one thing I always try to advocate for, and because a lot of people don't know about it, is there is health insurance that you can purchase for pets. And, uh, you know, if you have a puppy like you, a 12-week-old puppy, I would definitely look into that. You know, I think um, that can take all the stress out of having a sick pet. So I think that is one really important part of pet ownership and it can really take a lot of stress away from the family. It's already stressful enough if you have to make big medical decisions, but if you can take away the financial aspect. Yeah, um, for sure. It gives you kind of a clear head to make the decision. Yeah, but it's thousands of dollars. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, to do a CT scan and a big cancer surgery, that would be probably in the ballpark of $5,000. So um, most people don't have that disposable income. I don't know how my clients do it, honestly. I mean, they're amazing. Um, it's funny though. That just goes to show you yet again, not to bring up bad, a bad subject, but like how broken the human healthcare system is because the bills for that, yeah. if you, if you look at insurance bills, like, you know, what your insurance company pays out and how busted everything is, it's like, that would be like $200,000 that you'd be looking at Mi- like minimum, like $200,000 yeah. for a human. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of times we are using the same materials and um, we don't have the same salary scale as the human system, sadly, but um, similar training, maybe not quite as specialized as the human world. But um, yeah, it's, it, it is probably the insurance companies that are pushing that up, you know, the cost of, of healthcare up um, because, yeah, we can do things for in the thousands, um, not in the hundred thousands, but still, if you're you know, if you're a family and, you know, you don't have a huge amount of disposable income, I always tell people, if you don't have that available on the ready, you should have health insurance for your pet. Yeah, absolutely. So. Good call. Um, so let's finish this thing off with a little bit of more advice for people. So uh, what advice would you give to people that have pets with cancer? I have a few things. I mean, one would be not to not to be scared of that. And because it's amazing what we can treat. It's one thing I love about being a cancer surgeon is I can actually cure a lot of pets with cancer, uh, with just surgery alone, which, which actually makes my job really fun and and really satisfying. So, um, sitting and watching a mask grow and get bigger and bigger, it's just going to get harder and harder to treat. So, you know, people who are feeling fear thinking, Oh my God, my dog has cancer and I don't want to deal with that. You know, try to get over that and get to your veterinarian, get things assessed the easiest time to treat cancer is when it's early. So, you know, if you see a mass on your dog, if your dog's acting abnormally, if they're not eating normally, they're not peeing or pooping normally, if you smell something bad coming from their mouth, any of those things could be a sign of cancer. And they really, you know, you should get into your veterinarian and get your pet assessed because it's just gathering that information so that once you're armed with information, you can make a decision about what you want to do. You know, you may not be a family that chooses to treat cancer in your pet for whatever reason, you know, people all have different belief systems for what they decide to do for their pets. But I think getting the information is really important. So you know what you're dealing with. Mm, Great advice. And then how about the same thing for people since you uniquely have kind of know a lot about both situations? uh, What advice would you give for people to get diagnosed with cancer? Well, I would say listen to yourself. Um, 
you know, if you think something's wrong with you, there's probably something wrong with you and don't be dissuaded and, and told just to go home uh, or just to watch things, you know, try to try to understand what's going on with your body. If you're not a person with a medical background or a scientific background, reach out to your network. And when I, I don't mean the internet, <laughs> I mean your family and your friends and that network and find someone who can help you understand things and translate things so that you really understand what's happening with your body. And if you are tempted to go onto the internet to Google search things, be really careful. Um, there's a lot of very bad information out there that will, will lead you astray and can actually hurt you. So just be very careful about what you're looking at on the internet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And Sarah, thank you so much for taking all this time with us. This has been so great. And thank you again for your book. Your book is so awesome. I can only imagine how much more awesome it is reading your book. If, um, you know, for someone that has cancer or something, it's gotta be so comforting. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, a yeah. favorite, I think I get a lot of, uh, emails from people that say that they bring it to all their doctor's appointments. <laughs> That's so <laughs> awesome. The laugh while they're sitting there waiting for whatever's going on with them. So, which, right. which makes me happy. <laughs> That's what's gotta be so great is yeah, your book is so funny, you know, and, um, but it's just very real. So it's gotta be so comforting, but anyways, thank you so much for everything. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Dr. Boston. She is so awesome and it was such an honor to have her on the show. Um, Just wanted to remind everyone that today is the last day to enter the Patreon supporter contest. So go check out the Patreon page for Half Hour Intern at patreon.com slash half hour intern. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show.